What I want to know is, with all these sources of entrepreneurship, like Wall Street Journal, Forbes 8, even Shark Tank, how do you take action to what you're calling a power shift? What's up? I'm the Shark Damon John here. I am a panelist and investor on ABC Shark Tank. I'm the founder of a company called FUBU, and you're watching Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up, reminiscing about the good old days and all that. <laughs> You know, tracking my roots, where I came from and where I'm going. But like I said, hey everyone, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Today I'm here with the incomparable Damon John. Damon, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Always good to see you, man. Good seeing you as well. So uh, last time we met, it's been a few years, but I asked you how you got this job. Um, you told me how you got this job. You told me about your Red Lobster days, selling stuff out of the back of a van. Yeah. Um, and that was super inspirational. That was? It was to me, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want to know, know about power shifts. Um, you know, let's go back in the chronology just a little bit and review for those who didn't get a chance to look at Power Broke. Uh-huh. And maybe take that as a springboard into now power shift. So um, to me, those early stories that you told me of selling stuff out of a van, wh- wherever it was, T-shirts yeah. or CDs or, you know, whatever you could do to sure. make ends meet, was sort of about power broke, wasn't it? It was always a power broke because I had no money. Yeah. Um, so no matter what I was doing, <clears throat> uh, it was literally tapping into my Slack resources and trying to be creative and out hustling other people. And I'm saying hustling in a good way, you know. Um, it was always the power broke. I didn't ask you, I remember, um, what did you want to be when you grew up? When you were a kid, let's take it back a little bit further in the chronology. Yeah, I wanted to be a gazillionaire. Yeah. Yeah, and it was uh, quite attainable as far as I was concerned when I was uh, 5 and 10 and 15, and then reality started setting in. <clears throat> and I tell a story about when I was... You know, I wanted uh, to. Uh, I wanted to save up some money and create a crash car business, meaning buying crash cars at twenty five hundred, put twenty five hundred dollars into um, uh, parts, and then selling the car for ten to fifteen thousand dollars. And I did my math on it, and <clears throat> once I was sell the first car, then I can afford two, and then after that, so on and so on and so on, and. I'd be literally a millionaire in two years. And that was purely the map. Um, This was like age 15? It was about age 16. And I felt that also simultaneously, once I got up to two, three cars, I can drive the cars myself and I wouldn't have to pay for my own car because once I have this car, then I would have another one because this one's being sold. And I was driving around with a big for sale sign on it. But at nighttime when I would go pick up girls, I'd take the for sale sign off. And where, for people who don't know where you're from, where are you from? I'm from uh, Hollis, Queens. Well, a couple of things settled in. Number one, I didn't like working on my hands. I just, I just don't like it. Uh, you know, other people who are like, you know, they can pull cards apart. I'm really not good with that. Yeah. Number two is I didn't like the dealing with the people I had to get the parts from because I wasn't dealing with the dealership. Right. And when you grow up in my neighborhood and many neighborhoods out there, you go to these garages and they have all kind of parts and they're they're not the most savory characters. Yeah. And you're a teenager. And so, you know, probably trying to take advantage of you. 
Yeah, or whatever. Yeah, listen, they sell you a messed up transmission. You don't have a receipt for that, you know, and you don't want to. There's not the better business bureau to complain to, and you don't want to get your ass kicked either if you yeah. try to tell them, you know, what you're doing. So, you know, the business went to nothing, and um, <clears throat> and that was at the time when it was about 18, and I did the whole, I'm gonna take one year off of school, off of from going to college, right? Because I'm smarter than all the other kids. So you compound those two things together: the failure of the business and lost all my money doing it. The fact that I didn't go to school, so I can't say that I had a really great career ahead of me. And the fact that I was doing nothing but maybe odd jobs like working at Red Lobster. And then all the kids that I was making fun of were coming back from college and starting good jobs. It started to settle in that maybe I wasn't as smart as I thought. And, you know, as a kid, it's like you think you think you can only see what's so, so far, right? I was like, well, it's too late for me to start college now. What are you talking about? You're 22 years old, yeah. right? But too late for me to start college. I started making excuses for myself. And I but started- you know, back in the day, I could actually see how you might think that way because that was the way of thinking, right? Yeah. Back when you were in those college days. It was like that. I'm not sure because other people probably didn't use those excuses, but that definitely was the way that I was thinking about it. And most of my friends were dead or in jail because they sold drugs and I was... Uh, too cute to sell drugs because I knew that if I go to jail, I'd probably, uh, you know, not do well. Yeah. So, um... How about your home life? Did you have, um, support there? Always had a loving mother who, uh, taught me almost everything I know and was a mentor and a great woman, but, you know, they say that they like to induct you in the Army between 18 to 20 because you're the dumbest time of your life. You think you know everything and you absolutely know nothing. And so up to 18, 19, 20, didn't listen to my mother because she obviously was stupid because she's my mother. Like, my kids don't listen to me. Didn't have any money, failed at all the businesses. All my friends who, were, who I came up with were dead or in jail. I didn't go to college. I'm at the lowest point of my life at that time. So it started to settle in. And I started to settle at that point. Settle to go work as a waiter and say, well... What's the upside of it? Well, I'm never going to go to jail and or have to worry about the cops or people trying to kill me because I'm not doing anything illegal. However, what kind of raise am I going to get being a waiter? You know, other people, you know, they kind of work in, you know, some kind of system where hopefully they get some kind of raise over the years, over the years, over the years. They get benefits. They do a 401k. They do whatever the case is. And then they buy a house at a at a certain age. The house then grows. They then take the equity out of the house sell it, move to Florida, get a cheaper house, live on from there, and then 401k and retirement fund pays them. I, w- I was in a dark place, but none of that was going to happen to me as far as I was concerned. I couldn't see past a year. Yeah. So what did you do? When I settled, <clears throat> well, in between that time, I started a little van business, started to learn. It was like a, a <clears throat> we'd go up and down the bus routes and we'd pick up people for a dollar and drop them off. I started to learn a little bit about business there. But, I, but even then, I realized that I was working literally 20 hours a day, and uh, even though I was grossing $300, but after paying for Department of Transportation tickets that I would get because I was taking an illegal route, my van <clears throat> was 20 years old, so high maintenance on the van and paying for gas and paying for insurance, I literally was leaving with, you know, 
at the end of the month, after working 20 hour days, literally six days a week, I probably would make at the end of the month $1,500. Yeah. What'd you learn about people during that time? I learned that um, people will pay extra if you treat them better. When I was on the van, I would, you know, end of the night if it was really late. And the van, you know, so, so, so Queens is what they call a, a, a two-fare zone, right? And the reason why the houses are cheaper there is because if you live in the city, and let's say an apartment is, and we're going to talk in today's terms, let's say an apartment is a million dollars. Well, if you live in Queens, the apartment would be, or the house now, would be 400000 The reason why is because you have to take one bus, maybe even two buses and connect, and then one train, and then you get to the city. That's two fares, mm-hmm. right? So, and so now, you know, now you look at an hour and a half to two hours of travel that you can no longer work for work at that time, which means if you double that round trip, that's four hours and you pay two fares. So that reduces the cost of uh, how the houses are because time and time and money compound. Right. So uh, so I learned that when people got off this train, especially females late at night and I'm driving down this one boulevard and they're giving me a dollar, I learned that they would give me two or three dollars if I just made a turn and take them to three, two or three blocks in. So I started to build customers who would wait for me at 12.05. I started to have a bus route like a bus, right? Because they knew that I was going to come pick them up. I'm thinking that you're ahead of your time. You sort of invented Uber. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty much Uber. Uh, but, you know, listen, it, it was, it's a common thing in a lot of uh, cities in New York, a lot of, a lot of uh, communities in New York. And believe it or not, my mother did that as a, as, with a big El Dorado when I was, you know, six, seven years old. So I, I, you know, and I turned around and I looked at my life, you know, later on in life, and I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but I did everything my, my mother did. I tried to sew clothes, I tried to be a bad driver, I tried to be a waiter, she was a waitress, I tried to do everything. Um, but, you know, I learned, I learned about customer service, I learned about finding mentors, and I learned about there was a bigger world out there because I would speak to these people who were coming back from the city, and even though we lived in a lower class neighborhood, they were brilliant people. Some of them were accountants and attorneys and uh, teachers and something like that, and I would learn from them, and I would, I would get another bunch of mentors around me that I would learn from, and they would talk to me. And I learned also to add value to their life, you know? So those are a couple of things I learned, but I also learned that it doesn't matter how much you make, it's how much you save or how much you retain or how do you use the tool of money? Because even after working, you know, 20 hours a day for five or six days a week and coming home with $1,500, when I was literally making $300 a day grossing, that didn't mean anything. That didn't even mean any, I didn't have any money. I also didn't have any medical. I didn't have anything else. So I go back to Red Lobster. I say, I want to settle because I just don't want to take this job home with me. And nobody's going to wake me up in the middle of the night and ask me for another coleslaw. So I go home. I, I start working at Red Lobster. And I start to now be able to have the food at Red Lobster, eat some food, make some friends, and have, so, have a steady life and uh, make some money and put, you know, put money in a little whatever and have insurance. And that's when I started to say, well, what am I going to do on the side? I want to just do something I love. I want to, I want to, you know, I want to be able to have access to... Um, getting onto video sets and rappers and things like that. So I created this brand called FUBU as a hobby. Let's flash forward just a little bit. I want to come back to FUBU. Um, you talk in the book. Um, I love that story of I See You. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about how important that is to you. Tell that story for us. And then you know, talk about people believing in other people and how that can kind of bolster you up when you need it. Fast forward uh, 
you know, fubu starts to become really big, but it's, it's right here on the mushroom, you know, mushroom clouds here, it's here. Starting to do a lot. And there were a couple of brands out. There was uh, Fat Farm and um, uh, Walkerware, Cross Colors, of course, Carl Kanai, um, and 40 Acres and a Mule. And 40 Acres and a Mule was owned by Spike Lee. And obviously this guy is a legend. You know, he's one of the first young African-American directors who also showed um, some really edgy stuff, you know, in the community and, 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 and addressed race issues and various other things. And he was- Pioneer. Pioneer, by far. I get a card one day, and I see it, and it's, it says Spike Lee, and I say, I, you know, and... This came in the mail? He has a competing clothing line, yeah, and it's, it comes in the mail, in a letter. And it just says, uh, Spike Lee says, I see you. I don't, I don't even recall if there was anything else. I just believe it said, I see you, congratulations, or something like that. And it was that acknowledgement that... I finally had other people looking at me in a positive light that were over me, that were higher than me, and that have influenced me. And what are you talking about? You see me. You also have a competitive clothing line. I thought that, you know, when I grew up in the world of business, we were supposed to be mean, ruthless people, crush them, you know what I mean? Like, how dare you? And especially, you know, unfortunately in my community, they all say it's crabs in a barrel and People of color don't help people of color. There couldn't be anything further from the truth. People who don't know each other necessarily, who are living in environments where there's a lack of resources, there's always going to be conflict, no matter what color you are, right? Um, and to fast forward after that, I would get to know Spike pretty well. So did you think, it, were you blown away by it when you got it? I, fr- I framed it. I was, I was really blown away by it um, because he didn't know me and he didn't have to take that time to handwrite something to me who could be perceived as a competitor, who could be perceived as a little kid or somebody who's not worth his time. And I would fast forward and I would see him once in a while in passing and then we'd kind of hang out, but I didn't have his phone number and I never told him that story. And uh, we'd go to the Oscars last year when he won that Oscar and surprisingly enough, I walked up to him and I said, you know, I see you and he was like, I said, I don't think you remember. You ever wrote, you wrote me that. And he must have known and or remembered in some way because maybe he has sent that to other people. But it was me being able to show my appreciation and show because I was a fan of his from afar. I was a fan. I was way bigger of a fan after I got that letter, period. Right? But, uh, but it just shows that, it, that it's circular, right? It, it, it comes back one way or another. Uh, and it's such a small deed. You know, I'm a... Go, of course, and take it to one other small deed that was done. You know, when I was growing up, there was a show called The Odd Couple. Remember The Odd Couple? Oh, yeah. Uh, Oscar and Felix. So, for those who don't know, Felix is this really uptight, like... Which one are you? Oh, I'm Oscar all day. Yeah, Yeah, I left my underwear over there in the corner. But um, when I was on uh, the show, Felix was super uptight. He was like, I guess, uh, what do you call compulsive? Like, he was like... He was buttoned up, man. Buttoned up and tight. And, uh, Organized. Yeah, and his name, the real actor name is Tony Randall. I'm a messenger. I'm a foot messenger. I, I'm the kind of, you know, and I was about 15 years old, 14 years old. I went to a high school where you can go work in the city on a co-op program. You get a credit for working. So you have two, two, uh, two weeks at school, two weeks working. 
I was working as a messenger for a venture capital firm. I, don't, I think about that, me being a messenger of a venture capital firm now, knowing what I did. It was called First Boston. And we were in the, the messengers in the mailroom. Not the ones with, good enough to have a bike. The ones with the loud headphones and the... And and the and the package, you know, uh, you know, looking at everybody in the elevator and and you know, sound all loud and singing. The whole image, yeah. All right, I'm walking down the street, I'm singing a song, whatever, and there goes Tony Randall, Felix is walking down the block, and I stop and I said, "Oh my God, you're Felix!" And then he just stopped, and looked at me and said, "Yes, I am." And he shook my hand. I said, what's your name? I said, I said, uh, Damon. And he said, really, really, really good to meet you. This is a street with a thousand people. This is like Sixth Avenue. Yeah. And he, he would change. He would change who I would later become my perception and understanding of what a public person should be. You know, when I see people and everybody asks, why do I take a picture with them or listen to a pitch and this and that? It's because... There was nobody on that in the entire city of Manhattan but me and Felix for 20 seconds. And my entire life, I would remember that 20 seconds. This episode is brought to you by, well, me. I wanted to take a quick second to thank you for watching and listening. It means the world. Because in 2008, when I created this show... I was in a very different and difficult place. You know, up to that point, I'd worked for about 11 different companies and bosses. My last real job with a paycheck and health benefits was at Universal Pictures, working on the brand marketing and strategy team in the home entertainment division with budgets of over $30 million. I left Universal to pursue my dream of becoming a writer, director, and producer, having my own production company. So my little startup was brand new and self-funded heading into the Great Recession, and I felt like I was in huge trouble. I created Behind the Brand to solve my own problem. The idea was to produce a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, and the stories behind their success so that we could take a page from their playbooks. Millions of you now watch and listen to my show every month, and I'm so grateful. And over the last few years, I've seen a lot of shows popping up that look like us, which is fine and predictable. But if you're new here, here's how I'm a little bit different. If you asked me how I built this, I would have to answer, it was an original idea born out of necessity, not imitation. I'm not a journalist with a fancy pedigree or someone who's never worked in business. This show is not distributed by one of the largest publishers in the world. We are fiercely independent, and I'm proud of it. We don't have gimmicks or torture our guests with ridiculously spicy food. I'm not one of these multimillionaires who built a show to promote their huge life insurance company, wine business, or real estate empire, or to sell you self-help programs. Nope, I'm probably a lot like you. I'm married, raising four kids, and running my business. I'm in the trenches every day trying to keep my head above water and figure out how to be a little bit better tomorrow than I was today. I'm your eyes and ears when I go behind the brand. Thank you again for all the love and attention. There's no way I could do this without your support. If you feel like it, don't forget to leave a review with as many stars as you think is fair. Leave me a comment or ask me a question and I'm happy to respond. If you'd like to get an occasional email from me with some special insights and show perks, go to BehindTheBrand.tv and subscribe. Now let's get back to the show. What's the phrase? 
Uh, people will forget what you did, but they'll never forget the way you make them feel. Yeah. But it also made me feel, because then I would grow up in Hollis, Queens, where there was a massive amount of celebrities. Everybody came from Hollis, Queens. Every rapper like Hello Cool J, Run DMC, Salt and Pepper, Ja Rule, Tribe Called Quest, uh, all, all kind of people. I mean, Young MC. I mean, all in this little square area. And I would see, I would see some of these artists as I was growing up. I would see them ignore and or um, treat uh, their fans really bad. And it would later on pay off, I guess, because that's why I guess I'm called the People Shark. And the bottom line of what I'm trying to say is that it takes you only 10 seconds to make somebody feel special for the rest of their lives. You get a bad rap for being a shark now? Do people think that you're vicious, cutthroat, out for yourself, narcissist? No, you know, I don't have a problem. I, I don't get a bad rap there, but I do get a bad rap in the fact that people say, um, well, they say, well, you're rich, you have no problems. Um, you know, they say, oh, because you got it, you should do this for me. You know, you, you know, somebody gave you a shot, and why don't you give me a shot, and how dare you? You turn your back on people. So the entitled attitude. Yeah, you know, I, I, get, I get a lot of that, and I don't think... Um, I don't think, I don't think what I get is any different than what whoever gets who's at a job or in the community doing a little better yeah. they get from other people. Well, you're also, compared to all the other sharks, you're different, unique. Yeah. You're the youngest. I'm the youngest of the other sharks, plus I'm the one of color. Um, I'm the one that came up really tied close to pop culture, you know. Let's talk about the less obvious age issue, because, you know, uh, ageism is a thing, whether that's someone who's older and feel like they've aged out. Yeah. Or, you know, you know, you don't have any experience. You're only, you know, middle-aged dude. Sure, sure, sure. I think age is, um, it all depends on the, the inventory that you have or is being requested of you from an age standpoint. Well, let me put it in the context of you choosing deals, right? Because you've been very vocal about saying, I don't choose products or brands, you know, I choose people. Right. Am I going to want to answer the phone from this person who's going to be annoying the rest of her, her life, his life? 100%. I'm out, yeah. So, so does age factor into it, like um, experience and all that? Not at all. I've done great deals with a little kid named Moe's Bowles when he was 12 years old and now I think he's 18, and of course he's taller than me, which that's not a big accomplishment, but you know, he's taller than me. I've done deals with seniors who have taken the fundamentals of what they've learned in life and they made, they felt that they worked on everybody else's dreams, and now it's time to apply to their dreams. So uh, age has nothing to do. Now, uh, don't get me wrong, you know, if I'm talking to a Moe's Bowes and, uh, you know, he feels that he needs to, you know, set up a different uh, distribution chain in, in a different city and stuff like that, I'm going to say, I, you know, are you sure you're aware of that city, the issues and whatever? Or if he says he's, he's going to be a life coach. Yeah, exactly. So if he says he's going to be a life coach, I, I may have different issues. But if you're going to be a life coach and you're 12 to a 10-year-old, maybe. <laughs> you know, I take people for, I, I don't try to put people in a box because I've been put in a box uh, we all have been put in a box, and we don't like it when it happens to us. I like to see, I like to hear what they plan on doing and how they're going to go about that execution. Let's stay on that putting someone in a box theme. Um, you've been wronged before. Wronged in what sense? I don't know. Uh, some will call it like backstab, or you know, uh, 
taken advantage of or you mean before i woke up today are you talking about in between this morning when i woke up or now because i just was on a call where somebody stabbed me in the back (laughs) i am so let's talk about how to deal with that because uh you will find out that I produced this show very selfishly because I'm still uh, trying to figure a lot of stuff out. But I feel like, you know, I'm in the trenches like I'm at. But I love it. That's why I do my books, too. I love it. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's talk about that. Uh, how do you deal with that? Like, does that stay with you? Is that something that's hard, it's easy for you to shed, like uh, water off a duck's back? Or is that like that person's a marked man from now until the end of time? And uh, Do you know the Peter Thiel story? Well... The short version of the story is that he he happened to to be gay, but had n- had not come out yet, and a big tabloid magazine um, outed him, and he was pissed. I mean, totally understand it. Rightfully so. And um, and you know, I wouldn't say they ruined his life, but they had no right to do that. Ten years goes by, and Teal's just sort of waiting, biding his time. Meanwhile, he's a billionaire. And the Hulk Hogan case comes around where Hulk, you know, the sex tape gets released and this tabloid magazine goes to town and Hulk and Hulk tries to sue him. Well, Hulk doesn't have the money. And who comes to his rescue? Peter Thiel. Takes care of all his legal expenses anonymously. Hogan wins the legal battle, puts that big, big publisher in the UK out of business, bankrupt. Nice. How do you feel about that whole sort of revenge, holding a grudge. I mean, how do you deal with that? You know, complicated question that I've never been asked before. Um, you know, I, my, my father left me when I was 10 years old, and um, I would never see or speak to him ever again. And he recently is somewhere around, not in my life, but through some different parties. And when he left, he really made his three sisters and two brothers also stopped talking to me and they all had one, two, or three kids. So he went out of his way to say, don't talk. And a husband and a wife, a husband or a wife. So I lost 30 members of my family. He cut you right out of his life. Knew where I was the entire time. My phone number never changed from the age, because that's when we had obviously houses. My phone number never changed from 10 to 25 years old. Lived very close to me, could have always reached out to me, but it never did. Um, I could have tried to get back to him. I, sh- I could have tried to get back at him. I wouldn't even tell you who his name is right now. How, how did that make you feel while it was happening? Well, you know, like, listen, when, 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 um, when parents are getting divorced, uh, you know, the kids are often tools or the kids are just witnessing something that they can't necessarily comprehend. At 10 years old, I was witnessing something that I could comprehend a little bit and maybe you know, a father or a mother will tell kids something to spare their feelings. Maybe they won't tell them at all. Maybe they are a person of bad character. Um, and I remember, you know, feeling like I was, I was a little bit hate, I had a little bit of hatred towards my mother. And I'd find the things that weren't necessarily true that my father was saying or doing. Yeah, you felt manipulated maybe. About two years of that, and I remember saying, picking up the phone, saying, "Don't ever call me again." So, did I ask for it? Yeah. But you're talking about a 12-year-old boy, right? But then to make sure the other family didn't talk to me by saying, 
Damon and his mother don't want anything to do with you. Then the true character came out of, okay, who was the wrong person here? Right. Who was showing their characteristics? Did I ever think about getting back at him? Not at all, because, um, you know, um, we come from a certain, that side of the family comes from a very particular way of like, more the Indian heritage of grow up, become an engineer, mathematics person, coder, various other things. And I would have went on to higher education and I would have just done that. Nothing wrong with that, but I never would have challenged myself to be an entrepreneur. And I became somebody who wanted to protect my mother and, 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 and bring money into the family because it was just me, her and I, you know? Um, and so to answer your question about revenge, not at all. You know, if, if you, if you were uh, somebody who didn't see value in me, how can I make you see value in me, right? Now, that's that side. You can't choose who your blood is. On the flip side, friends and people, I, I generally cut off who do wrong because I always say to myself, if you're not a good enough friend to yourself, you're never going to be a good friend to me. And when they do things that I think are not, not cool... But I look at them and I go, wait a minute, they treat them their own selves worse than they treat me. It's not my problem. Yeah. I can't get back to that person because that person, maybe for 20 years, maybe that person's mother told them for 20 years that you can't, that money's evil and the only way that you can ever make money is be evil. Maybe they locked them in the closet all their lives and said, you know, don't come outside unless you come outside and you are the most aggressive, nastiest person in the world. I didn't raise them. That's not my problem. If you're not good enough friend to yourself or we don't agree morally, that's not my problem. Now, where will I get somebody back? I'll only get somebody back when I feel that they have, they have gone out of their way to screw me and uh, that they've hurt other people around. And I don't go and harbor and hold the grudge. I just always say there's a really, you know, there's, there's, there's a really good saying. You can't, you can't get somebody back if you're not in business with them. And I'm talking about when we're in business. So you stay in business when you tell them. You screwed me. <laughs> and then the final one is the teal one. It's. You screwed me or somebody around, and I'm not looking for an opportunity to screw you. But I'm not looking for an opportunity to protect somebody else, because when he helped Hulk Hogan, he probably saved so many more families. And I'm not saying I agreed with Hulk Hogan's thing, with the racism, some other stuff happened. Not my business. Don't even know the story. Can't say that I can listen to the magazine. But he saved other people from being hurt by somebody who had foul intentions. Karma came around and bit you, didn't it? Because at the time when FUBU was at its height and people were asking you to you know, break the box and do something custom, you thought you were too cool for school or too good. You decided not to do it. That came back and bit you, didn't it? Yeah, so the story basically goes when we were at our height, you know, we would, you know, uh, we would tell retailers, listen, you got to take the a whole box of jeans and the jeans were 12 and they were put whatever, 232, 234, 30, so up to 42. There were some people who, let's say you sold in Mexico and they're not making them, they're not making people too big in Mexico and people wanted 32s and 34s. They would say, I need 32 and 34s. And then we were like, and just take the 32s and 34s out, and, you know, or make more 32s. No, take the whole box. Hardline. Take the whole box or don't take the brand at all. We're FUBU. We're hot. We are on fire.
So what happens after? So so a retailer is not going to not pay their bill. They're not going to not bring in the inventory because they have to have food because if they don't have it, they're going to die. Yeah. All right. They keep buying all these boxes. Now they now they turn around in a year and they have 300 pairs of 40s and 42s. What are they going to do? They're going to put them in the rack in the corner for $12. 75% off, whatever. 75%. They got to get rid of them. The kid now comes in. Now he's not looking. You never you never walk in and look at the same exact gene and go, 32 44 $4, $40. You start to see $4. You start to see a pile of these things on the table. I mean, and it's like, wait a minute. How come there's so many there? Am I the only idiot buying it? There goes your brand. There goes your brand. Yeah. So what's the power shift? What did you learn from that? Aside from, you know, I got a reminder and I got a reminder in the power shifts of one thing that anything that you won't do, somebody else will do. That's how I got here. Right. By you don't want you. You don't want to come down to the video set. You don't want to respect me. You don't want to do this and that. Well, Damon will do it. That's how I got here. I also learned. The golden rule that it never goes away. The customer is always right. Period. End of story. I'm looking at the customer as being the person going into the store. Well, if the store doesn't carry it, how's the person ever going to see it? That was the customer, too. You have various levels of customers. Whoever is doing a transaction with you is a customer. So I learned those things. Um, and... Um, I learned various other things about about you know what I was doing and but you know listen I was uh, 34 years old. I was still learning a life. I mean I'm still learning today. So when we come back, you're going to hear Damon tell you how one smart decision just a couple of years ago literally saved his life and how it could save yours too. But first, a quick word from me about our sponsor AKA. Hey everyone, coming to you live from my kitchen at AKA, who's also a sponsor of this episode. Here's an honest review of one of my favorite places to stay, run by some of the best people I know, seriously. If you're someone like me who needs a place to work and live for a week or longer, I travel a lot doing these stories you know, I would highly recommend a stay at AKA. The truth is, I can't stand renting someone else's room because it never really feels clean. At AKA, you don't have to compromise because you get the best of both worlds. The best night's sleep in a sparkling clean room, space to spread out like it's your own home, full kitchen with all the amenities and service of a luxury hotel and more with locations in New York City, Los Angeles, London, Philadelphia, Washington DC and more just go to stayaka.com and check them out and when you put in the special promo code brand that's b-r-a-n-d listeners of behind the brand get an exclusive rate happy traveling now let's get back to the show how often do you change your mind like you decide I'm, I'm doing this and then no I'm not doing that I don't change it as much anymore. Not because I got smarter, because I make decisions slower. My decision now is like going into a store and I see a hot pair of boots that I want and I know they're $2,000, but I know I have 2,000 pair of boots at home and I haven't worn 1,900 of them. I go home. If I can't stop thinking about those boots, then I go back. Um, and money gives you the liberty to make decisions. A lot of money makes you, gives you the liberty to make decisions. And sometimes it's a lot of bad decisions. 
So also when I have um, done a lot of deals or new things in my life, I said, oh, it's not working this way. Here's another $10,000. Try that. Let's hire a marketing manager. Let's hire this. Let's hire that. And I used to do it fast and throw money at it. Instead, now my decision will be, well, why isn't it working? Well, let's hire another marketing manager. No. Let's get more inventory. Well, what's we're going to do with the inventory that's currently there? Let's advertise on LinkedIn instead of uh, Instagram. All right, here's $4. To know that everything has been exhausted. And then, at the same time, check my personal inventory. You know, every, sing, every, every single thing that I have uh, been successful at had a couple of things. Number one, I loved it. I loved the idea, loved the concept, loved, loved the, everything about it. I would have done it for free. Number two, I did my homework on it. And I kept doing my homework on it. You know, like uh, what, what they call Steve Jobs, a tinkerer? Or... That was number two. And number three, I had really good people around on it. Strategic partners, advisors, mentors, employees, whoever. And every time I failed, I realized one thing was missing. I didn't love it. And because I didn't love it, I'm not going to spend 10 minutes doing homework on it because it's annoying as shit. It's boring to me. I don't care. And I'm going to look for a scapegoat by finding this person that magically can come in with a magic wand and fix it. Well, they were so goddamn great, they would have had their own business. All goes back to loving it. So passion. Passion is a key component. Passion is a key component. You just need to know which one you want to make money off of or you think you can make money off of, you know, because there's a lot of things out there that... You know, you may have a passion for, but maybe, you know, you, you can't spread, your, you spread yourself too thin. Well, so my perception of you is that you probably are spread too thin. To, correct me if I'm wrong. Like, are you a capacity? Like, you got a lot of deals going. You're shooting this TV show just heading into, what, season 12? Yeah. Um, I got to imagine that you're in high demand speaking a lot. Sure. All over the place. Yes. So am I a capacity? Yeah, absolutely. And I look every day how to cut certain things out and reduce certain things. Yeah. What are you cutting right now? Uh, I hope you're not saying fishing days. No, 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 no. What am I cutting right now? Well, I'm cutting deals that I do externally outside of the tank. Right. Um, Why is that? Well, because the tank takes up, the tank is a very, very rare and special thing in a, in a way, right? Um, because we're really hands-on with those people. Yeah. But I don't know who's walking through the door tomorrow. And if I film, you know, a good season, I have 15 deals on the table. And by the way, those deals can't be like I just said. I like it, I'll go home and think about it. No, you just offered that person money and they're airing in a month. 
And this person, and that's why, you know, it's all hands on deck for my staff, because this deal and this deal are two different deals. This person needs to understand social media and reduce the costs on their goods. And, uh, and, and they're doing great in retail, but they're not doing good on social media. This person is killing it on social media, but they're in a bad contract with a distributor and various other things, right? And or they need more financing and or they need this. So it's really that. And so that takes up a lot. And the reason why I have to cut the other deals out is because I have an obligation to these people who allowed me to share part of their dream to give them the best shot. And Shark Tank's not going to be around necessarily forever. And this is a limited time. So as I check my inventory of my time in my life, I have to cut my inventory up to my family and God and uh, my health first. Then I have to look at my responsibilities and obligations that I've had, whether to Shark Tank or whether to uh, partners, because I... I, I, I knew what I was signing up for. So if I act like I don't know what I'm signing up for, then you can never trust me on anything else. And then I have to look at my current businesses that I already had and or my time. I can always cut my time back 20% from speaking on the road of various other things because of uh, Shark Tank taking up more time on my health or my family or a charitable organization. So that's how I break up my time and because my time purely is my inventory. It's the only thing I'll never get back. Yeah. And, you know, if Shark Tank goes away someday, you could always reverse that strategy and go back to taking or considering outside opportunities. Sure. I'm all, I'm all for, uh, listen, you know, people offer me they, they want to do a fund with me. You know, Dame, the Damon John Luxury Fund. And they say, we, we can raise $500 million, a billion dollars right now because people know that you have the inside track on a lot of businesses out there. I don't want to take anybody else's money right now because the last thing I want to do is take in a billion dollars. And they're like, why are you on Shark Tank or dealing with a, you know, some kind of little gadget? I'm like, well, that was my my uh that's been my my obligation they'd be like well you didn't tell us that when you gave when i gave you a billion dollars right so i mean everything comes with a price and 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 the price is usually time let's talk about time a little bit with regards to uh your health scare how did how did that change your pov maybe for people who don't know what happened kind of bring us tell us a story yeah so the story is that i was out with a a friend of mine, his name was Bernie Human, a really great manager. He he had managed Muhammad Ali and Siegfried and Royd, and he had said to me, "With all the money you have in your life, why don't you ever get yourself an executive physical?" And I said, "That's nice, but uh, what the hell is that?" Yeah, I mean, you were probably at that point in your life, your you know age. I was forty. I was forty-seven, forty-six, whatever, and I was like, I get a physical every year. Doctor, doctor grabs something on me, tells me to call, spanks me on my ass, and sends me on about my way. He's like, no, no, go get an executive physical. I said, whatever it is. I go and find out what an executive physical is. It's two days on uh, running through it like a hamster, running through everything, and they're checking the entire everything on your body. What's it cost? An executive physical, uh, you know, it can cost anywhere from 6000 to $20,000. I know the Mayo Clinic does one. I put my whole family through them. It's about time for me to get another one. I'm, I am told that some insurance companies pay for seniors for executive physicals, so maybe there's some ways. But it's, it's a costly, but obviously I, I have the resources to take care of that, right? So I go there and, uh, you know, they're checking these veins. What is it, Karata? All right, they're checking my carotid veins. Let me check your carotid veins and make sure they're not clogged because if they're obviously they're clogged, it's a higher risk of stroke. They say to me, oh, okay, give you back your report, but you know, got a little nodule on your thyroid, a little something, I'd go check it out. Go to the doctor, he goes and says, I'm gonna take a biopsy. There's a 90% chance that we're gonna find out exactly what it is. There's a 10% chance we can't tell what it is. My luck, they don't know what it is. Meaning benign or meaning, you know, Cancer. So I, I go to the doctor. Were you worried? 
Uh, I wasn't that worried because it's a little nodule on my thyroid. This big. Yeah. And You've been in pretty good health otherwise. Pretty good health otherwise. Um, I go to the other doctor. He says, all right, here's your challenge. You got a thing on your thyroid? Listen, let me tell you something. If you were 80 or 90, I would say, eh, don't worry about it because, you know, uh, the thyroid is the slowest growing cancer. It'll outlive you. Yeah, but if you're 50, you know, you have a 50% chance of taking out a perfectly good thyroid, a 50% chance of taking out something that could be detrimental to you. So I go, surgery. The one hour of taking out this small thing came, uh, became three and a half hours of taking out a golf ball size of stage two cancer in my body. Right in your neck. Right inside here, way inside here. And it potentially was moving to my lymph nodes, which would then travel to my brain because it was in my body for so long. And, you know, I, uh, you know, I had to rethink life at that time. And I can't say that it, I can't say that it, I, I rethought life in the regards to saying, um, yeah, Rocky, I'm going to beat this shit. No, I rethought life in a whole different way. You know, I rethought life in two different ways. Damon, you know, you've been doing this all your life. It's tiring being an entrepreneur sometimes. Everybody calls you with their problems. Sometimes. <laughs> Every day is a street fight. You can't tell anybody your problems, though, because you walk on water. You're the boss. You can't tell your employees that if, they, if, if uh, you don't get this next account, you have to close the division. Don't worry. Listen, I got money. But if you're a smart person, if you have a division and it's not costing you $1 and, and, and making two, if it's costing you $1 and you're only bringing back 50 cents, doesn't mean you're broke. Because a lot of people watch this now and say, well, you have the money. No, no, no. The reason I have the money is being disciplined. So you can't tell your best employees, we don't get this other account, I gotta close this division because they'll leave. You have a financial strain on your family, your wife, and your, your situation, and your target. You know, the reason why Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain ended up you know, in certain situations, mental, mental health is a big challenge in the entrepreneurship community. There are so many people that have a lot at risk. And it gets tiring sometimes, even in my position. Really, really tiring. I feel you on that. So the question, the answer to the question was, you know, when you when you when I looked at myself potentially having cancer, you know, because when they when they had to study it and the time of studying it, I didn't realize if it was already traveled. I had two things to think about. It was a good run. Let's get to drinking and partying and fishing. Fuck it, we're gone. And I want to know when I'm gone and it's on top because I don't want to be pooping on myself at 90 years old, you know, walking around and people, you know, I got to call people. So let me go out on top, baby. I can't wait to party. Or it's, you know, I'm going to fight this thing no matter what. And I, you know what, it may be a brutal fight. Uh, I may have to go to chemo or whatever else I need to do and I'm going to be suffering and there still won't be any guarantee that it'll help me. Um, but I got to do it. And I had to, I had to weigh in between there. What are my downsides and what are my upsides? Well, what is my downside? I got a three-year-old baby girl at home. I got a new wife. No mother should have to bury their children. I got two other girls older. It's a downside, right? What's the upside? I got a great ex-wife. I got two older children who already have had a good life with dad, right? I got a great, great, great current wife. And my daughter's three. She'll never remember me when I, you know, when she gets to 20. And my mother, I got to see my mother and she would be proud of me. I didn't take myself out. And you know what? I don't want, you know, to see my mother die because I love her so much. 
That's a stupid way of thinking about the things, but it is what it is, right? You know the old saying? Taking inventory. Taking all inventory. You know, listen, no, no, no parent should ever have to bury their child, but there's an old saying. I hope you live to 100, and me, 100, but minus a day. So I'll never know that good people like you passed away. And maybe that was selfish of me. But I decided to take on the battle of fighting it. And after I did, I forgot I was waiting for the results to come back because I was already on the road to winning. I forgot I even had it damn near because I shifted my mind to just not consider it. It's not going to happen. So is that kind of the overarching theme of the book, the power shift? It's a shift of the mind. It's a shift of the heart. It's to move forward, push through. It's the shift of a 10-year-old realizing that it's by, at, by the age of 15, 17, or 20, his father is never going to be in his life. It's the shift of a person who's realizing that they made the wrong decisions in life by not going to college, hanging out with the wrong people, and bullshitting themselves, that they need to shift themselves into another area. It's the shift of a kid who came up with a couple of hats and, and said, I'm going to create a global brand, and I don't know how I'm going to do it, so now i got to work 10 times harder than that. It's the shift of another kid who's somebody he said, listen, you got by, you got hit by lightning one time when you bit the apple, you got the golden goose, FUBU's dead and you're never going to do it again. So I come out with four and five and six and seven, you know, other brands. This is to shift to somebody who's dyslexic, writing four and five books to let other entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs know that it's not as glamorous as other people think. This is the reality. But if I can share with you my life, that you're going to get to where you want to be. And all of a sudden, because of the first one that I wrote, because... I get shifted onto a, a major platform where I get to empower other people and show them that, you know, the carpet has no, they don't, that, that carpet, when you stand on Shark Tank, it couldn't care less about your color, gender, race, creed. It is about money. It is about discipline. It is about your desire and drive. And if you're worried to work up, wake up before everybody else. So it's all these shifts, but people only think that the power shift is when I talk to you right here. The power shift in every one of those situations, all the way from me being a 10-year-old losing, you know, to, to losing an entire family, to me being somebody who was threatened with cancer, started with my mind first. Then it started with the relationships that I have curated and started to put out there, and, and, and I banked on those. Then negotiations happened, and then... The real value of it came way after negotiation because once I did a deal with myself, you, or anybody else, there were other opportunities that we grew off of, right? So your reputation is like you driving in the city and your reputation is skyscrapers. Everybody's going to see it, right? But a lot of people think negotiations start when you sit with me at the table and I've seen, I've seen over... I've seen over a thousand pictures on Shark Tank and over five thousand pictures outside of Shark Tank, and I all see some of the same common denominators on why people kill themselves when they walk into a room, or why people strive and and they're so strong that even after they don't get a deal, I go, I can't wait to find that person again to help them or root for them. Basically, I see you. I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up, reminiscing about the good old days and all that, <laughs> you know, tracking my roots, where I came from and where I'm going. But like I say, man, always said it. It's not about the destination. 
it's all about the journey Ain't nothing changed but the weather The dangling carrot that hang from the rear view uh -huh. Your dreams in the past ain't nowhere near